0: You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. We continue our series on Genesis today called Origins, and uh, the Bible is uh, 66 books, letters, and scrolls. It is uh, 33 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It's God revelation of himself to mankind. It illuminates and teaches us how and who and why we are who we are. Uh, The one in the front is called Genesis. Now, the word Genesis means beginnings or the origins, and uh, it covers a lot of ground in a very short window of time. This series covers just Genesis 1 through 11. In Genesis 1, God formed the universe and filled the universe. In Genesis 2, there's a party in paradise. As man and woman, God's image bearers are explained, and life is lived, and it is the way that men... That God designed us to be the way that life was meant to be. In Genesis 3, the party is over as deception and disobedience step in. Now, Genesis 3 gives the origin of all pain and suffering in this life. All hate and evil, all storms and all disasters, sin and all of its consequences are passed down to us from Genesis chapter 3. And while Genesis chapter 3 is the bad news, the story, the life, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news to that bad news. The good news is is that God did not leave us to self-destruct. Instead, he came to us in Jesus Christ and gave us a chance to be Back in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. Now Genesis chapter 4 however we see the fruit of that sin that deception and that rebellion and its growth and in chapter 5 we see 10 generations in two kingdoms. We see uh, uh, the stage that is being set for the most controversial, most painful, most uh, confusing story in all of the Bible is found in Genesis 6 through 8 which is God's reboot. And that's what we're going to talk about today, and that is the flood. Probably one of the more controversial uh, books, stories, events in the Bible. There are Christians uh, on a tremendous end of the spectrum of what they believe about this event. Is it real? Is it just? Is Is it something that we can really believe is is real. So um, let's go back to the story. We're going to talk about what we know and what we don't know about that. But let's run back to the stage that's set up for this event. In Genesis chapter 4, where we left off last week, in verse 16, it says So Cain, you might remember last week, Cain and Abel, uh, the sons of Adam and Eve, uh, Cain killed uh, Abel. And you see the growth of pain and violence in uh, verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That's where we ended last week. We'll pick it up at 17. 17. Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Now, this Enoch is not the same Enoch that uh, that has a mysterious end of his life. There's another guy, one of the sons of Adam, had a son named Enoch as well, who was taken up into heaven. But this is a different Enoch. This is Cain's son, Enoch. Cain was then building a city and named it after his son, Enoch. Now, God had sentenced Uh, Cain to wander his entire life but he does just the opposite he goes and he builds a city So what begins from there is what follows is 10 generations and in that storyline in Genesis uh, um Four, we see the very first case of polygamy. We see the very uh, first evidence of uh, mass murder, uh, the denial of God, uh, the wickedness grows more and more perverse. Um, it is God's design turned upside down a result of the sin and the rebelliousness of the heart of man that began in Genesis chapter three. Now going back to Adam in Genesis four, verse 25, it says, now Adam made love to his wife again and she gave birth to his son and named him Seth. Saying God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. So Seth had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So what happens in Genesis chapter five? You see the you see ten generations into. Kingdoms. You see the families, uh, the generations of Cain who were increasing in perversion and rebellion. And then you see the generations of the family of Adam and how many of them saw and called upon the name of the Lord. And by the time it gets to the 10th generation of Noah, there are only eight people alive who are still seeking God. And a strange issue happens in Genesis 5 that we got to talk about. And that is, did people really live to be nearly 1,000 years old? That's one of those big mysteries of the Bible that people just ignore. Looking at this chart. This is kind of the average age of some of the generations of Adam. Look at how old. Most of them lived roughly into the 900s. Uh, Enoch is the one that was taken up into heaven He just disappeared and his life ends somewhere in his 300s But you have this, this pattern that seems like most of the people in the Bible In Genesis 5 and 6 lived these amazingly long lives Now the big question is, is this, this real or not? Did people really live to be a thousand years old adam 930 seth 912 enosh 905 jared 962 and the oldest man in the bible this is a trivia question you'll be asked the oldest man in the bible methuselah he lived 969 years old oldest recorded man in the bible now here's what i think about this age did people really live to be that old i don't know i don't know it is it's possible Uh, I believe that they did. Um, How? I I, I don't know. I mean, we have this perfect creation from Adam and uh, the lifespan. You know, you've got prehistoric animals that were known to to live, uh, you know, hundreds of years, hundreds of years old. Um, So perhaps in that time frame, God allowed the lifespan of man to be longer. We actually see the point where he changes that. We're going to see it in Genesis 6, where God says, no longer are you going to live that long. Um, It was definitely causing problems because it was the reason for God's reboot. And it had a lot to do with the age of people's lives. So let's take a look at Genesis chapter 6. That was the stage that was said, by the way, I want you to know something. Jesus and the apostles and nearly five other writers of the Bible all quoted Noah as a real-life person. Jesus referenced Noah and the flood as a real life event. So I follow Jesus. I believe that what we're about to read is a real life event. Uh, It was, in fact, it is one of the most top five, most talked about people Noah is in the entire Bible. You've got Abraham and Moses, and you've got Jesus, and Noah is in the top five as one of the most significant, most talked about characters and events in the Bible. Jesus said it was fact, so we need to get to the facts of what happened, all right? So why did it happen? Well, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. This is the wickedness, the reason for God's reboot of the world. In verse 1, it says, When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Now, some people believe that this is the beginning of giants And that this is that these sons of God is a reference to angels who had sex with people. And I want to tell you something Jesus said that's not possible. So if you think that somehow angels came down and had relations with human beings, then you're not listening to Jesus. In Matthew twenty two thirty, 30, in Mark 12, 25, and in Luke 20, 36, Jesus says that angels do not have procreative ability. And in fact, when we leave this life and go into the next, we don't become angels, but we will be like the angels, and we will not be Procreating okay? Angels do not have procreative ability. Human beings were blessed with that power, with that unique gift. It's one of the things that makes us unique to all of God's creation, including the angelic realm. So what does it mean? Well, here's some possible explanations. Basically, sons of God uh, could either mean the righteous line of Seth and the unrighteous line of Cain and how they began to have relationship with each other, how the, uh, the two kingdoms began to intermix and corrupt the civilization. But more likely, sons of God basically is a generic term in the Bible that means mighty, powerful men living reckless sexual lives. The point is, is that these were heroes, even the mighty men, the sons of God, the heroes on the earth, even the heroes were wicked okay, and that they live reckless sexual lives taking anybody they wanted to be their wife, all right, Uh, meaning polygamy was rampant. There was no respect of God's design for marriage. In verse 3, then the Lord said as a response to this, my spirit will not contend with these humans forever. They are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. Now, I believe this has two meanings because From the point of this verse, it was 120 years to the destruction of the earth with the flood. But I also see that as God saying that we have a maximum amount of time on this life now, 120 years as as people. And by the way, the oldest recorded human being is roughly 120 years. So God made a decision for the sake of their life. Mankind was living so long Growing perversely evil more and more, God was bringing an end to long lifespans for their sake. It was out of his mercy that he said no one can live that long and continue down that kind of rate of perversion and and self-deprivation. Says long, evil lives were coming to an end, growing more wicked every year of their life. For their sake, Jesus said, God said, no more. And then verse 4, the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, the word Nephilim means, some translations like the New King James or the King James has the word giants because the word Nephilim literally means large people. Right? So the Nephilim or the large people or the giants is what they were referred to in some of the older manuscripts of English manuscripts, not the ancient manuscripts. They usually put just large fighters. Now, the Nephilim are these very large fighters who were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. And when the sons of God, these these righteous, uh, these I'm sorry, these sons of God, these mighty powerful men that were living reckless, evil lives, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. So these mighty powerful heroes of old, these legends of old, You know, a thousand years, the average lifespan was running. And so you've got, you know, hundreds of years, these mighty, powerful, bred, strong, mighty, larger than average human beings, these sons of God, these mighty men, these heroes of legends began to grow more and more wicked and more perverse and stronger in their influence. Nephilim is a generic term meaning mighty powerful men Now we know this because Nephilim show up again in the life of David And we know it's not the same family we, Some people say well, it's, the, it's the giants of Genesis showing back up it's, the, you know, it's not because the Bible is very clear That every person was wiped out during the flood That would include the ancient Nephilim So the second generation Nephilim is a title given to these large powerful men All right, so it doesn't mean that it's the same line of giants. See, there's this theology that floats around in the church, and it's not a big deal. You can believe this, it doesn't bother me because that's a non essential. But some people look at Genesis 6 and say, angels had sex with human beings, produced a giant of a person, these massive giants, and that somehow they survived the flood and they popped back up in the life of David, and that's who David slew, was one of these Nephilim giants. Um, The Bible. Uh, discredits that in its own scripture by saying that they didn't survive the flood and that Jesus said angels can't procreate. And so we have to put in the cultural context of what a Nephilim is, and that is a mighty, powerful giant of a man who is a legend, a hero of, of, you know, a hero stature, but they were growing wicked. It says in verse four, it says, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Nephilim were not a giant baby born from angels. These are not the Nephilim of David's time. These were large, mighty men, famous for violence, legends, but evil. And that's a problem when even the heroes were growing evil. There was no good left. So in verse five, it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord Regretted. Now I want to I want you to know this: that the word Lord right there is uh, the word Yahweh, which means the self-existent, eternal God who doesn't need you, doesn't me need me. Who's immutable? Who's perfect in every way? And then it says one of the most confusing words in the Bible: it says this Lord, who is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, holy, righteous, self-existent, regretted something. And some translations even use the word repented, which is a a poor use of what really the actual word there is. God is, is heartbroken. That's the point. He is unhappy with the state of man. God did not make a mistake with Adam and Eve. He did not make a mistake with mankind. This is what's known as anthropopathism. And anthropopathism is a figure of speech that attributes a human emotion and uses human emotions to describe something that is not human. God is not human. He is God. And the Bible makes it very clear. Verses tell us that God is like man, not like man, that he can change his mind, and that the plans of God cannot be changed or avoided or thwarted. God does all that he pleases, and nothing can stand in his way. So what does it mean when it says that he regretted? It's very simple. It just means, if you look at the original, it just means he was heartbroken. He was incredibly grieved. He was sorrowful. In fact, one of the more accurate translations is that he self-consoled himself. He had grieved with compassion. He looked at the state of the affairs of man, and he hated what was happening. So it goes on to say that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled, heartbroken. Figure of speech again. It relays God's thoughts. He was sick about our sin. This self-existent, omnipresent God, this was not a surprise to God. God didn't wake up and go, man, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. Somebody do something. God knew what was going on. But I want you to know this. God is emotionally invested in us. He did not have to care. He could have just said, and be done with everybody. Everybody but he chose to care. That's why it says that he was so grieved. He was heartbroken. He's emotionally invested in you. God cares when you do bad things. God cares when you hurt. God cares when you are heartbroken. God cares about you. He's emotionally invested in his creation by choice. Verse seven, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret, or the better word there is grieve, I grieve that I have made them. God is not vindictive. In fact, he waits patiently. He, at this point, waited thousands of years before making this decision. And even when he made this decision, he gave him 120 years to repent. And in 2 Peter 2.5, it says that Noah, while he was alive, preached righteousness to the people that were alive. God does not celebrate destruction. Humanity rejected his warning, and he is holy and righteous, and he is concerned about the spiral of decay that was happening. So what happens next is God steps in with mercy. So we have the wickedness. Now we have what a section I'm going to call the ark. And this is a picture of God's mercy. Many think that this is a story about a flood about an ark and animals going two by two. Anybody remember that song? I'm not a big Noah song. Somebody, anybody willing to sing that song for me? That two by two song. You raise your hand, Joanna. You might be the one. I'm not going to make you do that. There's a Sunday school song about, you know, going two by two. And so I don't remember, but I, I you know, the words. I just remember vaguely the song. Maybe you grew up hearing that. But this isn't really about a flood and ark and animals, but this is about the creator God who cares deeply about his humanity and decides to save ourselves from ourselves. Save us from ourselves. So Genesis 6, 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Circle that. We're going to come back to that later. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Guys, I want you to know this. That's not why God chose Noah. It's not because Noah was righteous or blameless or that he walked faithfully with God. The word that tells us why he chose Noah is in that verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. The word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. And grace is something you are given without merit. Why did God choose Noah? Because God chose Noah. All right. That's called grace. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But I want you to know that God didn't pick Noah because he was a good person. He picked Noah because of grace. Okay. Now, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was... Corrupt. You're going to hear the word corrupt and violence a lot in three verses. He says, now the earth was corrupt. That means evil, hated, and was destroying itself in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt, word two, that the earth was and had become. For all the people on earth had corrupted, there's three times, their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence, corrupt and violence, corrupt and violence. Because of them, I'm going to... Destroy both them and the earth. I'm surely going to do this. So verse 14, it goes on. So make yourself an ark or a boat of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch or tar, mud, inside and out. This is how you're going to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long. That's 450 feet. 50 cubits wide, that's 75 feet. And 30 cubits high, that's 45 feet. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof and opening one cubit high. That's a little less than two feet. That's about 18 inches. That's for ventilation. All around the top. So put a door on the side. How many doors? One door. One door only. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper deck. So I had three levels. This is then when the big rock giants, who were actually angels, come out to help Noah build the ark. You guys ever see that movie, Noah? And I was like, I was really excited about that movie because the trailers look great. And then these giant rock creatures, giants come out. And they said that these are like the Nephilim angels meets giants meets. I'm like, this is just dumb. You know, actually the movie had a different goal. It wasn't going to be called Noah. It was actually going to be called something else. And this is the first trailer for it. If you want to play this trailer, this is the original trailer for that movie. What is it? It happened again. I dreamt of Superboat. The people are restless. They deserve a chance to relax. What should I do? Take them on a cruise. Mankind has only vacationed on land. We will show them a new way. We will need wood. Lots of wood. God forgive us. We'll need all of the wood. Mother! There! What's going on here? An affordable ocean getaway for everyone. For you. For your wife. For your children. Do you expect me to believe this will be fun for the whole family? It's Superboat. There's something for everyone. Olympic-sized pool. Magic shows. And the zoo you won't believe. It won't be good. It'll be the best. The people who believe in us. Bowl. Will there be a place for me on Super Bowl? There will be a place for everyone. Feel very good. We need that. Are you not Are you not <laughs> So that was the original trailer, Superboat. That actually is a little bit more closer to what that movie turned out. be. Uh, The movie was not accurate in its portrayal of the ark, the flood, or the life of of Noah based upon scripture. Uh, That's pretty funny, though. I like it goes, it won't be good. It'll be the best. (laughs) I'm going to remember that line for a long time. That's uh, all right. So uh, where am I in my notes here? (laughs) All right, so that's not when the rock giants came out. So let's take a look what the ark was actually like It was an amazing task. It took us almost a century for Noah to build year after year He worked by faith with only a promise from God. And it was basically a large barge if I say large barge That's fun to say it was a hundred thousand square feet Uh has it been found? There have been so many documentaries. I mean, I was, since I've been a kid, I've loved the Noah's Ark found movies, and we don't know for sure if it's been found. I think most likely if you've got a massive structure made out of wood that that's large, when they hit land, they probably tore that sucker apart using every piece of wood to build their villages and their towns. So there's probably not much of that ark left. They'd, they didn't just land and go, wow, that's a lot of wood we harvested. Let's leave it. I'm sure they used it for their life. And, and so th- I don't know if the ark is out there. there. You know, we want to believe that it is out there, but this is probably what it was mostly like. Now, there's a guy in Kentucky who just this year built the ark to scale. And that's the picture up on the right. And you can see how big it is to the trucks. And the pickups, they actually built the Ark to scale. That's it in the middle. This is the inside. They built it inside uh, three levels, and they tried to figure out the exact size. Now, this is a, an estimation up here, too, really rough on the left. It's not as fancy. The one in the middle is from the Noah movie, and, and it's probably more like the one from the Noah movie, actually just a cube, a barge. And uh, this is the size. It's a little bit larger than a football field. it be end zone to end zone. Guys, Listen. Uh, the ark is very specific in the Bible. It's details, it's cubits. And um, some would say, well, it, it, it wouldn't survive. It wouldn't survive the water. It wouldn't survive, uh, you know, the, the, the motion. You know, it would, it would twist and turn and bend. It would, it would okay, here's something. You, okay, just wrap your head around this for a second. The Bible is all about Miracles. Our whole faith of who we are as Christians rests upon a miracle, the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ coming back to life after being crucified. Miracles are a part of God's interaction with human beings. So probably if some construction workers put one together, it probably wouldn't survive. But the miracle hand, how many of you guys ever been in a car wreck that you should have been dead? Or you look at your car and you're like, man, the other cars are like in twisted, you know, all twisted and you got just a little bender, fender bender. You know what? You're like, that's God's hand somehow, some reason intervening in your life. I don't know. God can do the miraculous. So it's important as we unravel this story that we try not to overanalyze the details in human form and Make sure that we're adding in the supernatural to this. So that's the ark. Now, verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it Everything on earth will perish. Now, the word earth also means land. So some people will say it was not a global flood. It was a local flood. The problem is, he says, I'm going to destroy all life under the heavens and every creature that has breath. So then if he says it's only going to be a local flood, then it doesn't quite match. So I have a question. Was this a global flood? Well, guys, listen. There are over 200 flood narratives on every single continent on the face of the earth. You could go to the Aztec Indians, you could go to the far reaches of Asia, you could go as far north into Siberia, and to the deepest Congos of Africa, and you will find a great global flood narrative in every single culture on the planet. Now, they're not all the same in the story. 80% of them are about a family that was picked by divine favor to live. And 60% of them include animals on this narrative. 90% of them are about judgment from God. Guys, listen. Somebody said, well, the Bible's version is just one more of those narratives. It might be so, but I don't think so. I think that it's a global narrative because this was a global flood. It's hard to explain how this happened, but there's evidence of it around the world. It speaks of the validity of a global catastrophic flood event. Now, in cultures that were drifting away from God, obviously their narrative changes to the culture of their point of view. We believe that the scriptures are the story of God's revealed word to mankind and that the scriptures narrative is the correct one. Goes on, verse 18, it says, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures or species, a male and female, to keep them alive with you. Now, here's another question. How did... In 100,000 feet of square feet of space, did every animal fit? Well, the interesting thing is, if you were to put in the ark's dimensions, you would only need uh, about 60% of the ark to fill the ark with 35,000 species. Because the Bible does not ask for every animal, but every species. And, And because of that, for instance, they didn't need every breed of dog, they just needed the main species of the canine family, and so forth. So when it comes to the animals on the ark, it doesn't need to be every animal just or breed, just the species, which narrows the total number necessary to 35,000, if you were to put two on each. And factor in that these probably were not adults. They were all babies or all small versions of these animals, meaning like very mature, maybe a year or two years old. Um, so you don't need even an elephant, you know, if you have a couple of baby elephants, they, they don't even, or giraffes or whatever, the more exotic animals you think of, or lions and tigers, they kill each other. They'd eat each other. Well, you know, you see people wrestle with lions and tigers. The 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 instinctive violence that are in these animals is not quite there as children or as babies, as cubs, and and that's very likely to have these 35,000 species that only fill up 60% of the ark anyhow, that they were probably most likely... Children or babies, but guys, listen, we don't know. That's the key. We There's so much about this story we don't know. And again, remember, this is a miracle. How did the animals even get there? You know, I think God is involved in this story. You know, I don't think Adam and his sons, or Noah and his sons had to go out and, and corral you know, a bunch of animals, you know, I think they just started showing up at the time when God, you know, there is mysteries of how animals can migrate. Maybe that's why God gave them 120 years because it was going to take 120 years to get these animals from all over the, the life of the world at that time to migrate to Noah. And we don't know if, if you know, bears can hibernate for over 100 days. They can go without eating for 100 days, and there might be a supernatural hibernation that God put upon these animals. We don't know. We don't know. We know that it's possible, and in order for it to happen, there must be supernatural. But if you, like, say, no supernatural, then, yeah, you're going to struggle with the Noah narrative, just period. You're going to struggle with pretty much all of the Bible if you get rid of the supernatural. But this is God's story, and God is a supernatural God. So let's go to the flood. This is God's actual reboot. In Genesis 7, 17, it says this, For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. As the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose, uh, They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. That means the mountains rose, uh, the water rose 23 feet above the mountains. Every living creature that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. By the way, on the ark, all he needed was land animals. Uh, When you've got 60% of the animals on this planet are really sea creatures, then you also are giving a lot of room for, for the ark. He says that everything on dry land that had breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. I like the NIV's version, wiped out. People and animals, Not. I don't like that things were wiped out, but I, I like that verbiage, okay? People and animals, <laughs> they wiped them out. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm getting at. Uh, people and animals and the creatures that move on the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Okay? Here's what we don't know about the flood, all right? We don't know how it happened. We don't know. There's all kinds of theories. I'm like a science kind of geek a little bit, so I like looking to do that, like the how God might have had it. You know, maybe you've heard of the greenhouse effect and how the world was created perfect with this atmosphere, kind of creating this perfect greenhouse where the entire world was tropical. And I've even read a book where uh, 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 Mercury was thrust into our solar system, changing our, our you know, axis, breaking that greenhouse effect. Placing itself uh, where Mercury is currently, uh, causing a cataclysmic, catastrophic event, breaking the heavens, breaking the earth, splitting the land, and uh, just chaos, changing the lifespan of human beings. By the way, from the moment the flood happened, the lifespan of human beings began to level out to what it is today. And you see, each generation got... Younger and younger and younger when they died. So you have a, a atmospheric change that definitely took place during uh, the flood. But Guys, here's what it gets down to. We don't know. We don't know how it happened. We don't know if it was uh, greenhouse. We don't know if it was mercury we, uh, entering our, our solar system. We don't know. We don't know how the animals lived, how the animals slept. How the we don't know that we know that they packed extra for food, but we we don't know if there were dinosaurs on the ark. We don't know. Some like well, dinosaurs weren't even alive during the time of Noah. Uh, Some Christians believe that dinosaurs and human beings walked the earth at the same time, and that God didn't necessarily wiped dinosaurs off the earth. He changed their lifespan. And what we have now are the reptilian descendants of dinosaurs. So some would say dinosaurs were on there. We don't, we don't know. We don't know. We know that God controls the animals, that he is supernatural. By the way, we don't know if Noah had any help either. A, hundred, a century to build the ark, and it doesn't say it was just his family. He just said build it. He might have actually hired people. We don't know. And the Bible gives no account of anybody ridiculing Noah during this time. You realize that? We're like, what's your favorite part of the story? I like, I like the fact that Noah stood strong even though he was being mocked and ridiculed. He might have, but we don't know because it's not in the story. It's not there. They'll say, well, I think it's kind of cool that it was the first rain, and they probably are confused. We don't know because it doesn't say it was the first rain. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it was the first boat. It doesn't say that it was the first rain. There's a lot of things that we grew up believing about this story that just are not in the story, and we just don't know. So there are things we don't know. But what do we do know? This is what I want to end with right here. Four things we know about this story. Number one, this is a story about sin. In Genesis 6, it's all about the self-destructive nature of mankind. The sin nature of Genesis 3, mankind is sick with sin and selfishness, and we are a human body in complete depravity, on display, with a clear need for God. We are so self-destructive when we are left to ourselves. And if you think you've got hundreds of years to live, imagine the depravity that you pour your life into, how much wickedness you can be a part of. This is a story about complete human self-destructive behavior, and we still see it today. Look around. Sin and violent behavior and self-destructive habits are controlling the earth. To this day, because of Genesis 3, when sin and rebellion entered the nature of human beings. This is a story about sin. And 2 Peter 3:3, 3, 3, Peter says this talking about the flood. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They'll say, you know what, there is no God. You know, it's been thousands of years since this so-called Jesus walked the earth and, and you know, billions of years possibly, you know, since the world began, there is no God. And life just goes on and on and on. Where is this God? That's not true. That's the accusation that creation makes. But verse five says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. He says a lot of people think that their sin's not a big deal, but we forget that this is a story about sin. And number two, this is a story about judgment. This was judgment upon sin. Now, some of our picks growing up as a kid, you know, when you think of like like Noah's Ark, you think of the nursery cr- room at a kids' church or in your nursery at your house, and you you put the nursery border, you know, the Noah's Ark and the 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 Noah, you know, little mobile, you know, hanging down, and yeah, Noah built a arky arky, you know, and you have these cute. Uh, that's not the song I know. Uh, um, but, but you see, you, never, you, you don't hang on the wall pictures of people screaming and gasping for life. Welcome to your nursery. <laughs> Welcome to the world, you know? That, that'd be like dangling four horsemen of the apocalypse from your baby's mobile. And the child saying, mommy, are those birds? No, those are locusts that God is sending to destroy the earth. But this is a story about judgment. Guys, this is a story about judgment because of the result of our sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in Christ Jesus. Guys, listen, the wages of sin is death. All of us, every one of us, the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person on the planet is sick with sin and selfishness. Every one of us are totally deprived, and left to ourself, we self-destruct. Guys, listen, there is in this story the realization that because of our sin, there is a judgment. We will be held accountable for our actions, every one of you. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says this in uh, chapter 6, verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that he will also reap. You will not get out of not being held accountable for your sin. God is still a righteous judge. Sin is still infecting mankind. And you might think, why doesn't God just, you look at the world, you look at terrorist attacks, you look at the violence, you look at the wickedness of heart, you look at the, you know, uh, people who do evil things and think, why don't, why doesn't God just get rid of all the evil? He did. And this is the story of what it looked like. He did. While God will never destroy the earth with water again, Revelation says a day will come where he will judge the earth with fire. This is the story about judgment. Number three this is where you get to breathe. This is a story about grace. A story about grace. In, in Genesis 6, 8, he says, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Grace is getting something good that you don't deserve, that's unmerited. How did God pick Noah? It was grace. Guys, listen, salvation is never by our works, never by our actions, never by our devotion. Salvation is always by grace. If you've said yes to Jesus today, it's not because you had a better life than the person next to you. It's not because you're more deserving than your brother, or your sister, or your coworker. It's simply because God found favor on you called grace and he invited you to enter into his relationship of salvation. It is, sure, uh, it is pure and sure through only grace. God's grace and unmerited favor still extends to people in this room today. We are guilty of our sin. We will be judged for that sin. However, God steps in and gives you an opportunity called grace. And this is the third thing, or fourth thing. This is a story about obedience. It's about obeying and trusting God when it seems strange and illogical. So much about this story seems illogical. You know, this was just a regular family with with no, you know, maritime experience, no construction experience. A vessel like this had never been built. And it was, uh, you know, hundreds of years, thousand plus years before vessels like this were ever built again. By the way, it's about uh, three Quarters the size of the Titanic. So the Titanic is much larger than this uh, barge of Noah's. But this was an amazing, strange, and illogical event. This is what it says in Hebrews 11 about Noah. It says, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Guys, listen, faith is this issue that this, this is a story about obedience. This is a story about faith. This is about trusting God when it doesn't seem to make sense at all. Some of you guys are there right now. You're trying to decide, are you gonna trust God on this issue in your marriage? Are you gonna trust God in this issue with your job, with your friend, with your coworker? Are you gonna trust God when it comes to this issue of that relationship? Know this, the godly obedience will set you apart from the crowd, just like it did Noah. Godly obedience will encourage others to follow you. If you step out in faith and obey the Lord, just like Noah had his family rally behind him, there will be those that will follow and step out because of your obedience to God. And godly obedience will bring salvation to others. If you will step out in faith, if you will obey God in that area that God's moving in your heart on, this is a story about obedience. Remember Noah, remember what he did. Remember for 100 plus years, he stepped out in obedience only remembering what the Lord told him, not always seeing the fruit of it, but by faith and obedience stepping into it. But know this also, godly obedience can get uncomfortable. Godly obedience can, be, can get smelly. As with Noah, it was a very unpleasant experience, I would imagine, to deal and to work. Godly obedience can be incredibly painful. All God ever asks is that we give him an unqualified, unconditional yes with our life. So I have a question for you. This is the story of Noah. Is this where you are? You know, uh, my daughter, Lord willing, will get her driver's license this week, right? Whoop. And uh, she takes the test on Tuesday and uh, you know in the old school driver's ed you know we did home 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 driver's parental driving ed but you know and some of those driver's ed have you ever been in one of those cars where the where the teacher has their own brake you know where you get, you. anybody ever been in one of those cars where there's like, the teacher has a brake too? They don't so much do it as much anymore, but you get in the car, the student has the wheel, the brake, everything, but over here, the teacher has a brake, and some of them even have a steering wheel too. I'm like, <laughs> that's exactly how we let God run our life. We put God in the driver's seat of our life, but we still have a brake over here. We're like, God, you're the driver. God, you're in charge, <laughs> but I don't like that. Er- I don't want to do that. We do exactly the same thing in our spiritual life. God says, "Man, get your foot off the brake and just let me drive." Let me drive. The choice we're left is: is do you trust God enough to give him your future? This is the last thing that this story is about. Is this is a story about Jesus. Jesus is the ark. Listen to this for just a second. This is a story about the love and salvation of God for his creation. Just as God extended grace to Noah through an ark, God extends grace to you through Jesus. God's undeserved favor is extended to you. Romans 5, 8, says, But God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's grace, undeserved, unmerited. It's extended to those that will take it. And as there was only one door in the ark, Jesus is the one door to salvation. As there was only one way to be saved from the judgment of the destruction that was due them because of their sin, there's only one way, one door, and one route to salvation, and that is Jesus. Jesus is the door as well. He is the ark. He is the door. Only through that door are you safe from judgment. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And as God called Noah to come into the ark in Genesis 7, 1, God says, Noah, come to the ark. Come to salvation. Jesus calls you today to come to salvation. Jesus says, come to me, the ark. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is calling you himself, is calling you, come. The door was opened and shut and secured by God, not Noah. And Noah was saved because he was in the ark. And I have a question for you today. Are you in Christ? One of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. or new has come. You see, this is a story that represents Jesus' current salvation and it represents Jesus' coming judgment because there will come a day when judgment will come. And until that day, They had 120 years. We've had several thousand. And God is still saying, come to the ark. Come to the door. Come before the rain comes. Because Jesus is the ark, but he's also the rain. He's also that judgment that will come. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 24. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the, before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And I have a question for you, and this maybe your question too. Are we living in the days of Noah? I don't know. I don't know if Jesus is coming soon or if it's still Decades or hundreds, centuries away. I don't know. I'm in the ark. I'm in Jesus. Why would I waste my life away pursuing my own selfish, destructive behavior, leaving me in depression, anger, and broken relationships when I can find the creator who designed me with purpose and meaning and learn and understand why and how he created me and plug into that mission that he designed me for? Why would I not do that? And it's not just about, I'm going to wait till I'm about to die so I can be and live however I want. I want the life that he has for me now. Jesus said that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy our lives. But Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. That was a theme verse for the youth camp. Life that's prime, the prime life, the, the supreme, the superior life only comes through Christ Some of you are like thinking, well, that sounds good, but it seems like forever, this whole thing, this Noah story, the Bible, Jesus return, all of that, man. It's been so long. This is, it's not gonna happen. Guys, listen, I know it seems like a long time and you might be wondering, why does it seem like it's taking a long time? Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter 3 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But a time will come and the wait will be over. But until then, the reason he is taking so long is that he wants you to have a chance to turn to the ark, to turn and enter into Jesus. Don't use what God extends to be space to repent with God's absence. Don't confuse it. He's coming back. It may seem slow, but he's giving you a chance today to come to the door. Until then, like Noah, I will obey God's word. I will build the kingdom of God. I will warn the people, and I will extend an invitation to come to Jesus the ark. Let's pray. Father, I extend an invitation to those in this room today to come to the door, to come to the ark. God, this is a story of sin. This is a story of judgment. This is a story of obedience. This is a story of grace. This is the story of Jesus. God, you see our sin, and we will be held accountable for it unless we run to the ark. Jesus, you took our sin. You took our shame. You took the judgment that was due us and you bore that on the cross for us. That pain and that suffering, that blood that was shed was for us. God, you received the penalty of judgment and then invite us to come. Thank you, God. It amazes me. Why me? If you're here in this room and, and you need to know that the door is open day will come when that door will shut and God will shut it himself just like he did at the ark but the door is open today and God just like he called Noah to come to the ark God is calling you to come to salvation come to the place of hope and healing and life discover life that you were meant to have Jesus thank you. Heads bowed and I closed. I want to give you that chance to respond right now. If you're in this room and you're saying, you know what, that's me. I want to respond. I want to come to the door. I want to invite Christ into my life. I want to be in Christ. I want Christ to be in me. Jesus, here's my life. Uh, all the mistakes, all the failures, the good, bad, and the ugly, I'm laying it at your feet. God, here I am. And you know what he'll do? He'll receive it. He'll take it. He'll welcome you in. It's by his grace you're saved, not your actions, not your works, not your past. It doesn't matter how dirty your past is, it doesn't matter what you've said, what you've done, where you've been. It's not your actions that repel or keep you. It is the grace of God and the grace of God alone. And if you hear that tug on your heart, that's God's favor for you. If you sense that longing in your spirit right now, that's God's favor for you. Will you respond to that today? Right where you're at, will you just talk to Jesus for a moment and in your own words, just pray to him right now and say, Jesus, here's my life. Go ahead and tell him in your own words. Jesus, here's my life. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my past. I give you my future. Jesus, wash me clean. Jesus, here I am. Father, thank you for saving me. I've come to the door. Show me how to live. Show me how to walk with you. Go ahead and tell him. Say, Jesus, I need you. Show me what it means to be your follower. Show me what it means to be your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.